Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Every Thursday night, two of my closest friends and I watch a movie together on some or other online platform. We've been doing it for over a year now, ever since the pandemic began, and last Thursday was the last Thursday that we were going to be watching something in October, a month that we had designated as an exclusively horror movie month. A couple months ago, prior to the horror marathon, we watched a a 2016 horror movie called Don't Breathe, and we liked it a lot. The premise is that there's a blind guy, he lives alone, he's got a bunch of cash stored away in a safe in his house, and these three young people decide to rob him. What they don't realize is that he's got, like, he's very fit, and he knows karate, and he's, like, got super smell and super hearing, and he's a murderous veteran or something. We watched it because the sequel was about to hit theaters, and then we were we were super jazzed about it, but then when the sequel hit theaters, we were like, meh, it's probably not worth going to see in theaters, we'll wait for VOD. And then it came on to VOD, but it was like 20 bucks to watch it just one time. But then miraculously, in that final week of October, Don't Breathe 2 was available on Amazon for just $4.99, and so we watched it, and we enjoyed it. Was it a good movie? I honestly don't know, but we had a great time. And what was particularly fun about Don't Breathe 2 is that it is very much a horror movie. You might even say, I think, that it fits into the slasher subgenre. But it's trying to be a distinct kind of brand. It's trying to be of the slasher genre, but not in the slasher genre. Now, please, if I ever have children, please don't hurt them for my having done this. But I want to talk to you for a moment about, about, about a man called Jacques Derrida. I was never a fan of Derrida. He's a French theorist, and you have to read a lot of his shit if you are a, lit- a, a literature major, as I was. Or maybe it's not the case anymore. It's so weird. These certain authors fall into and out of academic vogue. Like I, I know, whenever I was, when I like when I was in high school, and I would listen to interviews like with authors who were you know publishing at that moment. Anytime someone in, invoked Freud in an attempt to analyze something, they were immediately shot down as like you know don't invoke that fucking phallocentric douchebag but then i like halfway into my college education that tide started to turn and you started to hear freud's name pop up in a favorable way like kind of hush hush kind of like don't tell anyone but i i think i think these are all metaphors for dicks but when I was in college, you had to read a lot of Derrida. And in particular, there's this one, or, ah, oh, fuck, I'm not gonna do the accent. There's a, a particular essay called Structure, Sign, and Play. And it's one of the most famous things he's ever written. Not that he's like a household name. Not that, like, people were like, oh, you know what I love? John Wayne? <laughs> and Structure, Sign, and Play. Now, the concept that is most famous um, in that essay is Jacques Derrida's idea that, quote, the center is not the center. I remember being dazzled by the concept at the time that I was reading it, which is back when I was 20, and I thought that the best way of proving that you were smart was if everyone was confused after you spoke. Like, if they were confused, but you sounded so intelligent that they nodded along, kind of vaguely, like squinting. Anyway, what what, what he basically means, 
when he says the, the center is not the center, is that in our society, we have structures. Sometimes those structures are physical, and sometimes those structures are intellectual. Those structures have reference points, and those reference points help to simultaneously orient our thinking and to limit our thinking. We talk about things like the surface of an idea, or the basement of our emotions, or the center of a concept. Well, Derrida, one of the leading figures in post-structuralism, says something like this. When we talk about going to the center of a room, and then we are standing in the center of the room, well, that center space is so distinct to us, intellectually, that it is almost its own room within the larger room. Because his idea is that the center being so central, whether to a physical structure or to an idea, it, it, that, that means it's like a, it's, it's got breathing room. You can move around inside it. And within that breathing room, there would be a center. A center which is so central to the center that you could go into the center of the center. You know, on and on, and then a center to the center. That, that center. There's a center. You can centrally and then if you get to the center. The and, and the noise that a centaur makes is meh. <laughs> and on and on and on. Hence, Jacques Derrida's idea that the center is not the center. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm kind of sorry to have even invoked it. The reason it comes to mind, now that we're talking about that horror movie, Don't Breathe, Don't Breathe 2, where a bunch of, where this blind vigilante kills a bunch of meth heads, is because the movie is trying to be both in the slasher genre and separate from the genre by constantly subverting you know, the the things that slasher movies do. I mean, the foremost subversion in the movie is that the slasher in this movie is a good guy. You thought the story was going to go one way, it went another. Except, even when it goes in some other direction, it still stays within the wheelhouse of things that would happen in a slasher movie or an action movie. It keeps surprising you with unsurprising things. It's like if I handed you a present and the wrapping suggested the exact outline, of a pair of socks, and you're telling yourself, okay, this is definitely socks, let me brace myself for saying thank you, Alex, for the socks, but then, as soon as you open up the present, which you're pretty sure is socks, gloves, which is part of why the movie felt like kind of poignant regarding what's going on in my private life, because at the moment, my girlfriend wants me to go on vacation with her. Just to be clear, I'm not trying to suggest that it is a horror movie to go on vacation with her. It would be a very good thing, I, I, I look forward to it. But we were going back and forth, talking about like what we might want to do, where we might want to go, and she was hitting me up for contributions in this conversation, but the problem is, I don't know how to vacation. Which is fucking weird, like it seems like the simplest thing you could do. It, like not knowing what to do for a vacation reminds me of when I was using dating apps all the time, and one of the prompts on Hinge was, what is something that you enjoy? And I swear to God, every fourth or fifth person <laughs> wrote fun. It made me think like if you ask a room full of people what they enjoy, one in five will raise their hand and they'll say, I enjoy fun. And they will write that on their dating profile. And when they are out with you, de determining whether or not this romance appointment will culminate in sex, they'll say, I enjoy fun. Do you enjoy fun? And then you will, you will tell them if you do. And then maybe you can bond over that. <laughs> But here's the thing, I don't really like adventure. I don't like sightseeing. I went to New York City once. I was by myself there for four days and at one point I went to the MoMA and they were like, hey, there's a school in there so it's gonna be a 40 minute wait. So I left and I went to a bar. 
And while I was at that bar, I started talking to someone about like the sites you're supposed to see. And I was like, hey, what what does a person do at the Empire State Building? And she was like, you you go to the, you you look down. And I was like, then what? And she goes, then you leave. And I was like, cool. I look forward to never returning to this city. I like to do the shit that I do. I read books and write books and do podcasts and then sit in bars and have conversations. So my life, like, apart from being, from stressing myself out about those things, my life kind of is my vacation. And if I were ever to go on vacation, presumably to escape my stressors, I know that I would secretly be thinking, oh God, I, I gotta get back to my stressors. So then I had an epiphany. I realized that my concept of what a, what a good vacation looks like has been forged by my exposure to the friends of mine who can afford to go on vacation. Now that is exhibit A. Consider, anyone who can afford to go on a lush or adventurous vacation is, generally speaking, someone who has a well-paying job. That is exhibit B. By extension, well-paying jobs tend to be horrible. That is Exhibit C. People who have miserable jobs, who hate the fact that they are in traffic every day, who hate their boss, hate their colleagues, hate their workspace, those are the people who most exult in the concept of going on vacation. So I'm thinking that the reason I am so puzzled by what to do on vacation is because I tend to only hear people talk about vacation in, in, in relation to how miserable they are at work. And I'm actually quite happy with my daily life. I think I've just always looked at vacation through the, through the wrong paradigm, which is that vacation is an occasion to escape something. Whereas as you know, my girlfriend's impression is like, no, it's, it's, not, it's not an occasion to escape something. It's an occasion to go somewhere. So here's what I've settled on. Wherever we go on this vacation, and whatever we do, I know that a perfect vacation for me would be to simply look at my daily life, see what I most enjoy, and then take a trip to the center. <laughs> <laughs>